Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Um, and just a quick disclaimer, if you are on the sunny side, uh, if you need to at some point use your bulletin as a visor, I will not be offended. Uh, feel free to do that. It's, it's bright in here. Uh, reminds me of the opening of John's gospel. John 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Christmas is about that light, the light of Christ. But Advent, as Fleming Rutledge reminds us, Advent begins uh, in the dark. And exploring, pondering the darkness and, and our own need properly prepares that light to shine even brighter. Isn't that true that light shines the brightest when it's dark? Um, that's why we go to see light displays in the evening, right? Who's been here to see the winter wonder lights at the gardens? Yeah, you don't come at three in the afternoon. You gotta wait till it's properly dark. Or think about fireworks in the summer. You gotta wait till about nine o'clock at night for it to get pitch black to see the light brilliantly explode in the sky. And that's part of what we're doing in Advent. We're kind of lingering in that shadow, waiting for the light of Christ, confident that God's glory, God's love, God's light will have the last and final word, the lasting word. But for now, we wait and we prepare. Uh, we intend not really just to the darkness around us, but even the darkness we find within us. We spend time in repentance. We spend time uh, reflecting on the year that we've had. And I think that's why time and time again in this season of Advent, the church uh, puts us on a collision course with the prophets. We hear from these prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, Fleming Rutledge again says, in Advent, more than any other season of the church year, the prophets come into their own. Their theme, uh, and I wouldn't recommend putting this on a church marquee, but the theme of the prophets over and over again is the judgment of God upon the wickedness of the human race. And so the prophets come and they preach and they plead and they, they sometimes threaten, they cajole, they weep for the sin of God's people. And this morning, we're going to spend time with uh, one of these pretty obscure, uh, lesser known Old Testament prophets, Zephaniah. Um, I've got to be honest, at the beginning of the week, I saw Zephaniah as the reading and I was like, this sounds really fun. And then I was like, wait, where is that? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's you're in that place as well. Um, this is not a well-known uh, prophet, Zephaniah. Uh, but in three short chapters, if you read through this entire little book, um, you see some of the most intense images in all of the Bible of both God's justice and God's love. And so our goal really this morning, my goal is for us just to linger with Zephaniah for a little bit. Um, I'll be honest, there's not a lot of practicality coming out of today's sermon, not a to-do list, not real application, no. We want to spend time in attentive adoration, giving heed to this prophet and seeing um, how Zephaniah, this, this obscure, lesser-known prophet, would fill us with hope, lead us into songs of joy as we progress deeper into Advent together, preparing for Christmas. 
And so in your bulletin, you'll see Zephaniah 3, and verse 14 begins with, uh, I would say this whole section is songs, victory songs of comfort and joy. It's unexpectedly filled with music. Look at the opening commands. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Now, we're at the very end of Zephaniah. This is the last part of this book that we're encountering in our reading today. Um, earlier in chapter 3, uh, Zephaniah the prophet had told God's faithful remnant, the people, to wait. So therefore, wait for me. And after this long period of waiting, uh, this is what comes, verses 14 through 20. They, they've been given instructions to wait, and now God is going to act, and they say, sing boisterous songs of joy and victory when the waiting uh, finally ends. Uh, just to orient you, the first two chapters of this book um, are kind of scary. They're all about judgment. And even if you just look at Zephaniah 1 through 2, um, the headings in my Bible, judgment, day of the Lord, judgment, judgment. Okay, finally, the conversion of the nations and Israel's restoration and joy. But it's interesting. When you think of judgment, I don't know what comes to mind. But when you read through Zephaniah, there's an interesting uh, nuance or, or an inflection put on judgment, which is that when God comes to judge, it's not to destroy, it's to cleanse. It's to make everything right, the way it's actually supposed to be. And, and Zephaniah 3, our chapter, is really what comes next. After, after judgment, what comes and we see redemption and restoration and renewal. We, we see great hope in Zephaniah that, that God will act. And we see these kind of Emmanuel themes, God with us, that God will be present with his people. That's their great hope. Is it not simply that God will come in judgment, but that God will come and dwell uh, with his people in their midst. And you see that theme uh, punctuated in this section. Verse 15 says, The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. Verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst. That's, that's the anchor of their hope, is that God will dwell among them. God will be with them. And that's why this prophecy is, is good news. It's gospel. It's rich. It's beautiful. It's hopeful. Um, so just a, a few things to get your head around Zephaniah. I don't think, no, no scholarly experts on Zephaniah here today, right? It's not one of those books. I, I went to a church in, in Dallas, Texas, and we had an expert in the Gospel of Luke. He had written a two-volume, 1,400-page commentary on the Gospel of Luke. And I remember a minister preaching on Luke, and this scholar, Daryl Bach, he just sat there with his Greek New Testament, <laughs> unsmiling, <laughs> glaring at the preacher. But again, I don't think we have any Zephaniah experts today, but let me just give you a little bit of the context what's happening here. We're towards the very end of the Old Testament. Um, this is the fourth book from the end of the Old Testament in the Minor Prophets. Um, what's happening is that Zephaniah is, is, is prophesying during the final decades of the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, if you know your Old Testament history, at one point Israel is split into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, a little bit prior to when Zephaniah was, was actively ministering, um, that northern kingdom, Israel, had been destroyed, lost, taken into exile by Assyria. And by the time we get to Zephaniah, um, 
the southern kingdom of Judah, they're about to have the same thing happen from Babylon. Uh, Babylon is about to come and destroy that southern kingdom. Um, the way I think of a book like this is, is it's at the end of Israel's nationwide failed experiments in having a king. That's what's happening here. Um, if you look at Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1, we get a little bit of a timestamp. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, and then we get some names, the son of Cushi, son of Galiliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah in the days of Josiah. That's when this is happening. And I don't know if those names have any traction in your mind. Um, these, they feel different. They feel other, right? When we kind of go through these Hebrew names. Um, but at least two of them would have, would have, would have resonated uh, with the first folks who read these prophecies and heard from Zephaniah. Um, the first would be Hezekiah. Hezekiah is one of the kings in the Old Testament. He's one of the few good ones. There's some good stuff to Hezekiah. Um, secondly, Josiah. That's when a reform took place in Israel. Um, and, and it's one of those things, a lot of these names, they're, they're foreign, they're unfamiliar, but everyone knows at least one Josiah, right? <laughs> like maybe from like a VBS or like, I don't know, there's, there's Josiahs everywhere somehow. Someone has been like, we're going to name our kid Josiah. Because Josiah was this king who he actually found the scriptures that had kind of been lost. And he said, hey, look, let's read this and let's do this. And it was kind of this last ditch effort to get God's people to return and repent and follow what was God's best for them. Um, it, it didn't happen, um, unfortunately. It was kind of a last ditch effort. But we just hear about these kings. And, and there's a few good kings. They're, they're kind of decent. Um, and they tend to be the exception, not the norm. And even the good kings, I mean, even a good king like David, I mean, goodness, think of all that he did that was not good. <laughs> They're all tainted. And what's interesting is if you think about the, the kingship theme in the Bible or, or really what Zephaniah is saying, Zephaniah chapter 3 is saying, hey, what's going to happen when things are the way they're supposed to be is that God is going to be your king. That the Lord God is going to be king uh, in your midst. I think that's, that's huge as we think about the Advent season and Christmas that is to come, the kingship of God's people. Who, who would rule? Who would reign? Uh, who would they follow? I mean, if you go all the way back in the Old Testament, the original vision was that, that God's people would not have a king, that they have this direct covenant relationship with the Lord, and they're set apart, and they're special, and they're holy because of that. And pretty quickly, 1 Samuel, um, they say, no, we, we kind of want to be like the other nations. We'd rather have a king. We'd rather have a focal point that we can trust in, a, a political leader that we can lean on and put our faith in that will lead us. We'd rather not be led by the Lord directly. And in that instance, 1 Samuel, God actually says, okay, if that's what you want, we can do that. Um, he warns the people. He says, you want a king and you don't realize what you're asking for because the way of the king is to exploit <laughs> and to go to battle. And you think this will be good, but it won't. And I would say the rest of the Old Testament is this running timeline of those good kings and bad kings. Um, some of you might know I, I, my, my minor uh, at UGA was in political science. 
And if you actually just look at the Old Testament through a political science lens, you know what the whole message of the Old Testament would be? Why monarchies and empires are bad. <laughs> That's it. Why monarchies and empires are bad. And so these human kings, they're letting the people down one after another. And in the midst of their failure, God will send these prophets. And they annoy the kings. Because they point out stuff that they don't want pointed out. They call out sin. They call out hypocrisy. They call out duplicity. They call out injustice, ways that the king is, is profiteering themselves, and exploiting the poor, all these things. But as they're coming and calling the king and the nation to repentance, you start to hear the prophets weave in this new theme. They start to have this hint about um, a new king, a better king the Messiah, that would represent or would be God himself. It's, it's a little fuzzy. And the prophets is exactly what's going to happen. But you hear that this will be a king full of wisdom and full of strength. That will captivate the hearts of the people that will serve them, suffer for them. A king with ancient roots and a special connection to God. One of the other minor prophets, Micah. He says, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, of ancient days. You start to hear these hints and rumors and this picture and hope emerge. And Zephaniah says, one day, once again, the Lord will be your king. And the Lord God himself will be in your midst. And when that happens, there'll be joyful celebration. He says, sing aloud, shout for joy. Um, it's, it's loud, it's boisterous, it's joyful. Um, when he specifically tells the, the women to sing and shout aloud, that was common. Because usually what would happen, you actually see this with, with other songs in the Old Testament, is the idea is it's a victory song. That, that the men of the town or the city or the nation had gone off to battle fought and they're coming home victorious and all of the women gather in the city to sing and shout for joy. That they've been delivered, that they've been brought home safely, that they've won the battle. And Zephaniah is saying there will be a day like that when the Lord God will be in our midst and we will know that the battle has been won and we can shout for joy, we can sing with gladness. And not only that, we actually see here in Zephaniah 3, uh, 17. I think this was maybe the only verse I was familiar with before I started my preparations this week. Um, that God himself is singing. That God's singing over us. God is delighting over us. Verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He'll rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I just want to underscore that. I think when I had first heard Zephaniah 3.17, I don't know, I had this picture of like God singing me a lullaby. I don't know if you've heard that. He's going to quiet me and sing over me. It's going to be so sweet and gentle. He says, no, this is victory. This is, a, this is a parade. They're getting loud. God's delighting in his people. His, his love and joy is on beautiful display these are victory songs of comfort and joy as they wait for their king to come. And that's their ultimate hope, that their king would finally come, their, their king is coming. 
Um, recently, I was watching a video from the Bible Project. Some of you guys know the Bible Project. That's someone who works for the Bible Project here. Um, about some exciting work they're doing. And Tim Mackey, one of their co-founders, he just gave this nice image. He says the Bible is, is like a symphony. And we can, we can approach the Bible, we encounter it more like a piece of music or like a symphony. And we, we can see these repeated uh, words and patterns, images and themes. Um, they interweave and combine and even come back around like music, like a good piece of music. And that's what, when I look at Zephaniah 3, um, it's just interesting to kind of play with these themes. See where they, where they come back around. Um, how they, they resonate with, with the rest of the scriptures. Um, and so when I first read this first part, Zephaniah 3, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice, exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Um, that set off a chain reaction in my brain. Because that sounds really familiar. That happens in some other spaces uh, in the Bible. And it actually happens with another prophet, uh, Zechariah. And I know Zechariah and Zephaniah are kind of tough to keep straight, but they're two different guys. Zechariah is about 100 years after Zephaniah uh, and actually picks up this idea where Zephaniah had said, sing aloud, Israel, shout aloud, daughters of Jerusalem. Zechariah will pick it up and say, here's what it's going to look like. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. This is Zechariah 9. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Sounds familiar, right? He then goes on to say, behold, your king is coming to you. He's going to flesh this out, what it looks like for the Lord God in our midst. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the Bible likes to do this kind of thing. Introduces an idea. Sing, shout aloud for your king is coming. hundred years later, Zechariah comes and says, hey, it's going to be kind of like this. There will be a donkey and a colt. And that probably seemed like a throwaway detail all the way until Jesus comes into the city. And he comes mounted on a donkey. Uh, I mean, usually if we're kind of approaching Christmas, we think of Mary on the donkey, right? <laughs> Pregnant Mary traveling. No, this is Jesus on the donkey. Palm Sunday in the middle of Advent is what's happening here. This great symphony of the scriptures that they were waiting on the coming salvation of the Lord God as king. And that that theme passes through Zechariah. We learn that king will be full of righteousness and salvation on a donkey. What's that mean? And then we get the Lord Jesus entering the city. And we come back to this singing and this shouting. Because what happens when Jesus comes into the city? The city goes nuts. They go wild. They're singing. They're shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We start to see Zephaniah fulfilled. They're obeying these commands to sing and shout aloud. It's actually interesting to kind of put those in tandem. Because when Jesus enters Jerusalem, do you know the first thing he does that we see in Matthew? He doesn't go get rid of the Romans. That's what they were hoping, right? <laughs> Here's our enemies. Will you please go fight them and get rid of them? No, he makes a beeline for the temple and clears it out. Cleanses it. Look back at Zephaniah 3, verse 15. 
The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again uh, fear evil, which I think is fascinating. Just, it, it occurred to me, just as I was kind of praying and thinking about this, um, isn't that the way of the Lord often? That we're looking at all these things that are wrong or, or this, this darkness over here, the Romans or, or the nations, Babylon's coming on Zephaniah. Maybe we're elbowing the person next to us. I don't know. And the Lord comes right to us. <laughs> he says, hey, we need to do some business. We need to cleanse some things. We need to clear some things away and clear some things up. And so we have a season like Advent to kind of do that. To go, hey, how do we prepare? How do we repent? How do we get ready? Um, not just reflecting on the first coming of the Lord, but thinking about his second coming. When Christ again will come and we prepare and we get ready. Um, we deal with our stuff. And again, it's not to, to scold or, or to punish. It's to prepare and to cleanse. It's to get us ready for this Emmanuel idea of God with us. God is king in our midst. And so we have the balance in the prophets. Even John the Baptist was what kind of we read in the gospel. You see this incredible balance of God's holiness, the purifying judgment combined with great love and glory. And so what starts, this, this weird little prophet, what starts is this word of warning, day of the Lord, judgment, all these things, gives way to, to comfort and hope and shouts and songs of joy. Zephaniah 3 finishes uh, with the Lord gathering in some of the most lonely and the least likely. He changes their, their shame into praise. They overflow with redemption, restoration, renewal, uh, with hope. That when God comes as king in our midst, saving us, rejoicing over us, comforting us with his love. Again, not softly like a lullaby, but with shouts of loud rejoicing. That we can be assured, that we can stand firm. And for us, that we would look back at the whole of scripture and say, hey, this all started happening and being fulfilled in Jesus. In his birth and his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. But some of this we're still waiting on. We're still waiting on this kind of restoration and renewal and for all things, to, for God to flood everything with his glory. And so we wait in hope and we sing songs of joy. And during Advent, we realize that just as they waited so long for the coming of the Messiah, we put ourselves in those, those shoes and say, we wait again. And we wait on God to come and make all things new and fulfill all of his promises. And Advent's really a chance just to slow down and, and, and think about that. Um, ponder these things. Store them up in our heart. Turn them over uh, in different directions. I, I always think that this is a little out of order because uh, we're in Advent. But after Jesus is born, you know how the shepherds come? Crazy shepherds, they're out in the field, angels pop up, it's wild. Um, the shepherds come and they, they tell Mary everything they had heard from the angels. And Luke writes that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I don't know, I always think of a season like Advent, like that's what we're doing. We're actually slowing down long enough to treasure up this story, to ponder it in our hearts so that we don't, enter into it quickly and let it pass by quickly, but that we wait for it, we prepare for it, and then we enter in 
the Christmas story, the feast of the incarnation. And so one thing we'll do is next week, we're actually going to do this a little bit together. Um, I love this. We're supposed to sing loud songs, right? Um, We're going to come next week, and our service um, is just going to put this story on display. It's a service called Lessons and Carols. Uh, It's an old Anglican service that originally one of the bishops, um, I'll tell you this, yeah. Um, One of the bishops was really annoyed that in his town, all the men spent all of Christmas Eve at the pub instead of with their families. And so he decided instead of a short church service, <laughs> he, this, he wrote this thing called Lessons and Carols, and his goal was to just keep the men of the town sober and in church. <laughs> um, I don't think we have the same worry at 9 and 11 a.m. on a Sunday, hopefully. But um, the idea is that you would just take time, and we're going to hear it's, it's readings from the Scripture. It tells this huge story of the Bible. Um, and then we respond in song and singing. We, we do what we're told here. We, we just open up our, our mouths and sing with joy for who God is and what he has done. And so we'll do that. We'll, we'll sing and we'll hear from the scriptures. Um, the dean of King's College, Cambridge, says the main theme of the service, Lessons and Carols, is the development of the loving purposes of God seen through the windows and words of the Bible. And that's what we, we're doing. We just, you just pick up a piece of scripture, kind of like we've done with Zephaniah 3, and you go, hey, what, what do we see here? What's the window? What's the word? What's the stained glass window? We can see the light of Christ. We see the story reflecting and refracting. We see it anew. And we just marvel. Just attentive adoration. That's, that's our goal. And so my prayer is that our time reflecting on Zephaniah 3, um, one, maybe just introduced you to Zephaniah. <laughs> if he's unfamiliar. Like I said, I wasn't that familiar with Zephaniah. Um, but just to see how these few verses fit in the context of the big story of the Bible. Hopefully this will illuminate uh, these incredible themes of Messiah, our Emmanuel, God our King with us, and lead us out with joyful worship and adoration. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.